Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Intuitive Transformations with your host, Sylvia Henderson. And discover tools, wisdom, and inspiration that will empower you to transform your life. Sylvia is an intuitive life coach and energy healer with a growing practice that is focused on empowering others to be more of who they want to be. For the next hour, join Sylvia and explore and unravel anything in the way of you creating the life that you would love to live on the Ohm Times Radio Network. Well, hello and welcome to the Intuitive Transformations radio show, where you will find tools you can use to change and transform your life every Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Ohm Times radio network, The Voice of Consciousness at OhmTimes.com. This is Sylvia Henderson, your host, and I am an intuitive life coach and energy healer. My work focuses on releasing limiting beliefs that have stopped you from enjoying all that life has to offer. You know, those beliefs that keep you stuck in painful relationships, limit your financial potential and freedom, and rob you of your inner peace. If you would like to learn more about me and the work that I do, please visit my website at intuitivetransformations.net. That's intuitivetransformations.net. Well, today we are going to talk about trauma and how it can affect our lives. Specifically, we are going to talk about childhood trauma. You know, those inner wounds that seem almost impossible to heal. And we're going to talk about how psychoanalysis and Buddhist teachings may prove to be a viable solution in healing the pain of our childhood past. Joining me today is Dr. Pilar Jennings, a psychoanalyst in private practice with a focus on the clinical applications of Buddhist meditation. She has been working with patients and their families through the Harlem Family Institute since 2004. Dr. Jennings is a visiting lecturer at Union Theological Seminary and a guest lecturer at Columbia University. She is also the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism, and her newest book, To Heal a Wounded Heart, The Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psychotherapy in Action. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pilar Jennings. Thank you so much, Sylvia. It's good to be with you. And it's good to have you here. <laughs> So, Dr. Jennings, would you mind first telling us about your own story? What led you to become a psychoanalyst? Sure. I think I, I grew up feeling curious about the human condition. Uh, I, was, I was a sensitive, uh, pretty introverted child, and like many introverted kids, 
I, I was noticing a lot, observing a lot, and certainly even within my own family, noticing real differences. Uh, my mother was Peruvian. My father was Scottish-American. They had very different personalities and very different histories. And by the time I was uh, 10 years old, um, my mother, who was just very spiritually curious, was taking me to different spiritual communities as she was training to become a psychotherapist. And so I was in an early age exposed to, to both psychotherapy as a way to understand the human condition and spiritual practice. Uh, and then many years later, I started studying anthropology and focusing on what are called illness narratives or how people talk about pain and suffering. And it was really through that work that I felt called to become a therapist. So um, you mentioned your mother briefly and being exposed to these spiritual communities. How did you come to find Buddhism? So she and I took a meditation class together when I was a child, and this was in the 1970s in Southern California, so it, it wasn't that unusual for, for kids to be exposed to something uh, that seems a little uh, esoteric, and I loved it. I loved being in a room with people where we were quiet I liked that experience of feeling close, but with a boundary. And, and so over time, I stuck with it and just continued to explore different forms of meditation. Um, and by the time I was a young adult, it, it really felt like a central part of my life. Hmm. So for those who are listening, because you offer psychoanalysis. What is the difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy? Sure, it's, it's a good question, and I know it can be a, a source of confusion. Um, there, there's a lot of common ground for both traditions, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. There's a real appreciation for, for the unconscious which basically means that we have a part of the mind that holds so much of our experience. It holds all sorts of memories and feelings and beliefs, but it's very hard to access that part of the mind. And in both of these traditions, there's, there's a, an understanding that if we, if we slow down and get to know ourselves with another person, we're going to have a better chance of accessing that unconscious material. But in the analytic tradition, the idea was to really intensify that process and try to meet with a therapist multiple times per week to really become one's own anthropologist. Psychotherapy operates with a lot of the same teachings, um, but with a little bit less frequency of meeting. I see. Okay. So really it's more about how often you have an opportunity to really dive deeply. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what you're looking for, right? In the analytic tradition, there's, there's a, a certain reverence for how much we go through early in life. 
And so the, the tradition has tended to emphasize the impact of our infancy, our, our child, certainly the full spectrum of our childhood experience, and to try to link what we go through in adulthood with what we go through in, in the earliest stages of life. So as I mentioned um, earlier in the show, we're talking about trauma today, and in particular, childhood trauma. So what is, how do we define trauma? What is your definition of trauma? And are there different kinds of trauma? And how does one discern if they've experienced trauma in their, in mm -hmm. their life? Sure. So a good definition for trauma is any excessively stressful experience that completely overwhelms our existing coping mechanisms. So as, as we age, we develop ways to deal with stress, um, but we, we don't necessarily have all of the coping mechanisms needed for specific events. So, for instance, if we, if we undergo a sudden loss when we're a child, right, when we're too young to understand why people might leave suddenly, even from something they have no control over, uh, we don't yet have the ability to, to process, to decontextualize all of the, the factors that go into that loss. And to to tolerate the frustration of of sudden loss um, in adulthood, we might have an accident or be impacted by a war, something we've never been through before, and it overwhelms the the coping mechanisms that we've been dealing with life prior to that time. And one way to, to assess whether or not someone has been traumatized is, is through how they're feeling after the fact. Often people who are traumatized have this sense of almost being split from the world. It's, it's almost as if the world they were a part of has gone away or is no longer as accessible as it was. So that's, that's a real telltale sign. So that sounds really interesting. That it feels as if the, they're separated. That the world has gone gone away. That they're no longer apart. So is that similar to PTSD as well? Yes. Yeah. So people who have post traumatic stress disorder will will often have a sense of not really being an active part of their world. Of of feeling disconnected. Mm -hmm. And and they might talk about it as feeling um, really isolated or different from other people, not able to connect. And, and those are usually all indications of trauma. So when trauma is experienced as a child, is it mm -hmm. much more difficult to resolve? Um, you know, because... Obviously, someone who's come back from a severe war situation or who has been, um, you know, rescued from a war-torn, um, you know, country, they have experienced quite a bit of trauma as well. But does it, um, is it more difficult to resolve when it's a childhood trauma, something that happened early on in your life, maybe because you don't even remember it? Mm-hmm. 
yes, I it's I want to emphasize that it's it's certainly possible. It's always possible to heal from childhood trauma. And it's it's really challenging, in part because so much of what we go through in childhood, especially before we're fully verbal, is quite hard to access in adulthood, right? And we have all sorts of beliefs about who we are that set in before we're verbal, before we can reflect on on who we've. Um, come to experience ourselves as being, but those beliefs start to feel like an absolute truth in adulthood. And it it can take a lot of time to just lift them to awareness. It's almost like they, they set in as part of our very being, as part of absolute truth, uh, rather than as a result of experience. Mm. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with a child's inability to really rationalize that um, they're not the centered cause of what that trauma was because children really associate with everything being uh, them as the reason that it's happening. Is that pretty typical or? Yes, it it is. And it's part of why childhood trauma causes so much suffering in adulthood is because there there usually are these powerful lingering beliefs that the the child was somehow responsible mm-hmm. and there there are different psychoanalysts over time who have written about that one was Fairbairn who suggested that children will assume what he called the burden of badness which is basically a way of protecting their sense of the parent or whomever their caretaker was as a good person, right? To split the badness off from someone who might be causing them pain or causing them harm and and feel that somehow they're carrying the badness because they have to they have to depend on this person. And it becomes too dangerous to see them as harmful or bad. But over time, that that creates a lot of suffering, right, with that distorted sense of one's own. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Own responsibility for early pain. Yeah. 
gosh, I wish there was something we could do on a global level to help children, Mm -hmm. you know, negotiate through life because that really is, it does create a great deal of suffering and, and, um, a skewed sense of self too. And, and as an adult, that does cause a lot of pain. It does, and and I'm all for helping children learn a little bit about the psyche. I think kids kids are so smart, and they really do want to understand themselves. They want to understand others, and I I think that there's room and and education to introduce children to the notion of of having a conscious part of the mind and having an unconscious part a part that's a receptacle for all of the experiences we go through that are just hard to to face into. And I think kids could grapple with that, and it would reduce a lot of suffering later in life. You know, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, children are so much brighter and far more intelligent than they're given credit for. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, I think that they – you know, given the right tools and having the right conversations would, you know, be incredibly beneficial and make their lives so much easier as they continue to evolve until adulthood. Of course, that takes a lot of different elements, like having a really supportive family or someone in their life who's consciously aware and able to deliver that information. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that would be really important. So something else I wanted to talk to you about was um, how you bring Buddhism into your therapy sessions. You've been working with patients and their families at the Harlem Family Institute for some time as a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And um, I am curious as to, and I'm sure the listeners are too, as to what first prompted you gave you the idea to bring Buddhism into your therapy sessions? And how that has changed your therapy sessions. And I know we're going to be going into a break very soon. So um, why don't we have you answer that when we return? Sure. Um, Everyone who's listening will be back in just a few moments. Um, I have with me today Dr. Pilar Jennings. And we're talking about her new book, To Heal a Wounded Heart, as well as childhood trauma. Stay tuned. There'll be more in just a few minutes. The future of internet radio is here. OM Times Radio. IOM FM. Ascending Hearts is no ordinary dating site, but a spiritual dating site with a purpose to link you with your soulmate. We engineer the serendipity so you can trust that you will attune with someone that has the same matching vibration as you. Ascending Hearts, the conscious dating site for the spiritually aware. Try Ascending Hearts for free. AscendingHearts.com Hello, I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, host of Om Times Magazine's flagship radio show, What is Going On? My passion is sifting through information, research, and innovations from new thought teachers, speakers, and researchers pushing back the boundaries of what we know about life, energy, metaphysics, and the universe. I love shifting perceptions about who we are, why we're here, and how quickly impossible becomes normal when we open our minds, expand our awareness, and accept that the only limits that exist are those we place upon ourselves. 
So if you're the kind of forward-thinking, eager investigator of what lies beyond the current reality that most perceive, why not make a date to come play with me in the field of possibilities at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday, and together we can discover what's really going on. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to lights and sounds, so I felt secret hiding places where they couldn't get in. Sometimes, I did the same things over and over, until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Intuitive Transformations on OMTimes.com. This is Sylvia Henderson, and I have with me today my guest, Dr. Uh, Pilar Jennings. And uh, Pilar, before we went into the break, I had asked you um, to talk about um, what prompted you to bring Buddhism into your therapy sessions and how that has changed um, psychoanalysis therapy sessions with you. <laughs> sure. So by the time I began training to become a psychoanalyst, um, I had been practicing Buddhism for about 20 years. And I had been reading and, and studying with my teacher, Buddhist psychology. So it, it very naturally just um, entered into my exploration of, of psychoanalysis. And when I began working with patients, what I found is that the way I was practicing the analytic method, which was um, designed to be one of uh, deep curiosity, uh, non-judgmental awareness, it, it was dovetailing very fluidly, very easily with all of my Buddhist training around mindfulness which is very similar to Freud's notion of even what he called evenly hovering attention or just learning about oneself, learning about others without that part of the mind that's assessing and evaluating and criticizing. Um, but I found that my, my Buddhist training really helped me enter into the analytic process um, with uh, with a certain ease, I mean, not always, <laughs> um, but with a, what felt like an increased readiness to learn and to feel to feel um, receptive to learning about people, especially the parts of their experience that were very private and very hard to talk about, uh, with with real receptivity. So for those who are listening that um, when they think of Buddhism, of course, they think of the Dalai Lama or they think of other monks, you know, can mm -hmm. you share a little bit about what Buddhism is? Sure. So Buddhism is a, it's a spiritual and religious tradition uh, that developed just over 2,500 years ago. Um, founded by the the original Buddha Shakyamuni, who 
was a, a young man of real privilege. He was raised uh, with a lot of material resources. And when he was about 29 years old, the legend has it that he felt compelled to leave his, his family estate and was exposed to the reality of suffering and in ways that he hadn't seen before. He, he saw uh, a sick person, an elderly person, someone who had died, and he also saw a spiritual person. And he, over time, developed um, a spiritual method that was really based on efforts to get to know the mind, to really see what's happening within oneself as we let those, those critical uh, parts begin to settle so that we, we see a much fuller, deeper picture of what's there. And so the idea is that when when we do that work in meditation and and through contemplation, um, our our sense of reality, our sense of who we are, will tend to change quite a bit, because typically we we cultivate a sense of identity only based on certain facets of our experience, certain feelings, and certain memories. But when we really get to know the mind, right, in a, again, a fuller way, our sense of who we are, our sense of what we're capable of will, will tend to grow dramatically. And so that's, that's just the beginning, but that's the central part of, of the Buddhist spiritual process. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was beautiful. Um, so being a spiritual practice, do you now then feel that spirituality um, should be an essential component of effective psychotherapy? And if so, why? And how do we introduce this without it becoming, oh, now it's spiritual and it's not clinical anymore? <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I do think it's it's a critical part of any good psychotherapy. In the same way, I, I believe that all facets of a patient's experience are relevant to the therapeutic process. So, I mean, people typically imagine that it's only trauma that's relevant or it's only psychological experience that's relevant to psychotherapy. But because we are influenced not only by our families, right, but also our culture, right, we're influenced by, by gender, we're influenced by history and politics, everything we go through, right, is, is relevant to, to the therapeutic process. And I would want to suggest that in addition to having a psyche, right, in addition to being psychological beings, we are also spiritual, which is to suggest that, that we all have a, a part of the mind that wants to transcend the grip of self, right, that wants to feel connected beyond oneself. And so bringing that experience and perspective into psychotherapy I think can be extremely freeing for people. It can really give people a sense of possibility, a sense of meaning. Mm. 
Yeah, I definitely see that. I love that the way you've worded this, it just really is a much more broader holistic approach versus trying to separate an aspect of our psyche out and ignoring the rest of who and what we are. So um, thank mm -hmm. you for sharing that. So what are some of the Buddhist teachings and methods that can be easily introduced into psychotherapy that would increase some efficacy? Because I know, as you've already shared, when and what people typically think of is Buddhism is about contemplation and meditation. So how do you mm -hmm. bring that into a psychotherapy session? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I tend to bring it in, I would say, most typically just in terms of how I am with my patients. So I, I think having had a lot of practice uh, entering into a contemplative state has helped me listen better and hear more about what the patient is, is going through. And so it's, it's usually less about trying to encourage my patients to meditate, and it's more about how I am with them. And then in addition to that, all of the, the training, all the spiritual training on developing real compassion has been extremely helpful because most patients who are working through any kind of trauma tend to have a lot of shame about their traumas. Mm. Even if intellectually they understand they were not responsible, most people feel some shame, some humiliation about having suffered. And so for me, it's it's been extremely helpful to have a way to to help my patients cultivate more compassion for themselves and to slowly, slowly work through that shame. That Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Humiliation. Hmm. So in, some, in many ways, it's made you a much better therapist is what you're saying. I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah, I I hope so. And and even when I don't feel that I'm I'm understanding someone or I'm struggling in a in a treatment, having a method that helps me feel more patient, feel more compassionate with my own process, I think has been protective of treatments when they're difficult or when they're, they're not clear. Mm. So it's 
in many ways as you experience that own self-compassion you're you're also probably able to more be more present in a compassionate space with those who you're working with yeah that's that's what i have found um and and i've also had the experience of being a patient working with clinicians who have a spiritual practice and so i i also know that that experience of being cared for by someone who's curious about my psychological history but who is um treating me and treating the process with a, a certain tenderness a mm. certain quality of compassion that I, I think was really reinforced by their spiritual practice more so than their their clinical training. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So, and, and how critically, I mean, how important that is, especially doing family uh, treatments or young, working with young children, that that would be mm -hmm. um, incredibly important. And so th speaking of uh, uh, younger children, <laughs> you know, in your book, To Heal a Wounded Heart, um, the theme character is, is really Martine, the little girl you wrote mm -hmm. about in your book, and how introducing Buddhist teachings were helpful in her particular case. Can you just mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about her? Because I believe she was six years old when she came to you, and did you work with her for about two years or longer? We we worked together uh, for about eight years in, in total. Oh, eight years. Uh, yeah, I know, but I, I don't clarify that in the book. And, and the book really is about my entry into the profession and the beginning stages of our work. Um, and what I found with her and with some of my other patients is that talking about their their difficulties and traumas um, did not come easily. And with this little girl, she, she was not able to say very much at all. Now, over time, I've had that experience also with adult patients where there's there's so little trust that they can be heard with compassion and with understanding that it becomes almost impossible to speak freely. But when I was beginning my, my training as a therapist and with this, this young patient, I was really anxious about how this was going to work out because I had been trained to, to engage in what's known as the talking cure. And so working with a patient who was not able to talk um, was confusing and it left me feeling concerned that I wasn't going to be helpful enough. And over time, I became curious about what it would be like for her and for other patients um, to, to be met with uh, more, more appreciation for the silence, right? Just to let, let the silence unfold, not, not passively, Right, but with a certain reverence in the way we do with meditation, which is to allow, you know, allow one's mind to be. You know, if it's if it's in retreat, if it's hard to find, to allow for that. But then to just stay with it, stay really curious, 
And so with her, I found myself utilizing a lot of the tools that I had learned in my, my spiritual training and slowly bringing them into the treatment with her. You even uh, were so bold as to invite two of the Buddhist monks into your treatment session with her at one time. <laughs> yes. And, and that was a decision that, that came after quite a bit of consideration. Um, like all clinicians in training, I was in supervision and talking through and trying to understand my experience with my patients. And it occurred to me and to a supervisor that my Buddhist teacher, whom I had been very close with over time, also had a, a very complicated uh, childhood trauma history. He he had um, left his his country of origin, Tibet, when he was a young child, and then gone to an Indian refugee camp with his his parents and his younger siblings. And um, several of his siblings died very quickly due to illness and due to the conditions of the camp. And yet, despite all this tremendous loss, right, really painful loss, he went on to live an extremely meaningful life. Right? He, he had tools and his, his spiritual practice to, to try to work through those losses. Not, not to eliminate the suffering, but to understand it and to help him find ways to call meaning from it. Mm. And so it occurred to me after about a year of working with her that it might be interesting for him to come in for, for a session and to share with her a little bit of his experience as a child. And, and then in the book, I, I write about what it was like to introduce them and what it was like for the three of us to have a few sessions together. So I wasn't aware that you worked with her for um, eight years. So she was, what, 13, 14 when you last worked right. with her? Mm -hmm. And so in terms of, because in the very beginning, uh, you talk about her in the book that, you know, she... One of the reasons that her grandmother brought her to see you was because she wasn't talking. And so where was she at the conclusion of, uh, of working with you? How had that changed, especially going into those teenage years? Had that mm -hmm. changed for her? Did she feel more confident? She had a very turbulent childhood with her mother mm -hmm. having a lot of issues and abandonment and you know, just about all of the big classic, big things that can happen in childhood that can create trauma. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about um, um, how she was after eight years of uh, treatment? Yeah. Well, well, let's do that after the break. I didn't realize we were coming sure. up on the break. I was so engrossed in the conversation. <laughs> Everyone will return in just a few minutes. Please stay tuned so that you too can hear the answer to that question. <laughs> The cutting edge of Conscious Radio, Om Times Radio. 
IOM FM. Host your show on IOM FM, the radio network of Ohm Times Media, one of the more recognized brand names in the conscious community, and is backed by the extensive marketing reach of Ohm Times. Hosting a show on IOM FM immediately connects you with our extensive, dedicated community. Hello, I'm Lisa Berry. Join me every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for Light on Living, a chance to see new, hear different, and feel more as I shine the spotlight on all the ways to lighten the load of life's challenges. Light on Living is your link to that new way you're looking for, that new understanding that will enhance your life, and that positive connection that will support your growth. So join me and you'll gain insight and start to see things in a new way that motivates you. Hey, let me ask you something. Would you seat your three-year-old child on a windowsill? Would you seat them beside a lit fireplace or by the deep end of a pool? One last question. Would you seat your child in a car seat that's not correct for them? Car crashes are a leading killer of children ages 1 to 13. Secure their future. Seat them in the correct car seat. For more information, visit safercar.gov slash the right seat. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. And we're back. This is Sylvia Henderson with Intuitive Transformations on OMTime.com with my guest, Pilar Jennings. And she is the author of a new book, To Heal a Wounded Heart, The Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psychotherapy in Action. And um, Pilar, before we went into the break, I was asking you a question and then the music came right in. And so <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about um, the teenager uh, Martine, you know, after she, you had worked with her for about um, eight years um, mm -hmm. from where she started, where she was this very closed, um, hardly speaking, didn't want to talk to people, um, little girl. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, what, what I experienced with Martine uh, was an increased trust. And I've, I've now had this with other patients as well, but I, I was particularly grateful to experience it with her, which is with the sense that um, whomever she was, however she was feeling, would be welcomed, would be acceptable. And ideally, this is what happens in therapy, is the patient comes to, to trust that the fullness of who they are, right, which could include all sorts of states of mind, all sorts of moods and, and moments of either real intimacy and connection or, or silence and withdrawal are welcome. And so what I found with her was just an increasing feeling of ease. So... Um, if we were talking, that happened easily, not always frequently. I think uh, she was, by her nature, uh, introverted and shy. Um, I was, too, as a child, so I, I identified with her. But I also felt that she was communicative with me much more easily and in various ways, right? through talking, through play, through drawing, um, sometimes through through just being together and playing playing cards and having a sense of of ease and connection. 
So did you find that she was able to generalize that trust and be able to extend it to other people in her life as well? Well, that's, yes. And, and that's, that's the hope. Of course, a therapist never knows, but that's really the, the job of a therapist is to try to help a patient have an experience where there's integrity, there's trust, there's there's enough reliability that the patient starts to to want to cultivate close relationships outside of the therapeutic relationship or to deepen the closeness with the people who are already in their life. And you know that is my my hope for her that you know, there's there's a, a growing wish to to cultivate real closeness and and to believe that people can be trustworthy. Of course, that takes some discernment, right? Not everybody is, but that some people will have the capacity to show up and be reliable and honest and caring. That is the hope, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, something you speak to in your book is the importance of vulnerability. Why mm -hmm. is vulnerability so important? And if one has experienced childhood trauma, how does that affect their ability to be vulnerable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a real theme in the book um, because what I have found both, both personally and as a clinician is that it really is our our human nature uh, to feel and be extremely vulnerable. This has something to do with not being viable in isolation, right? We, we really um, need absolutely everything that comes through relationship, right? Food and care and love and learning. It, it all arises through relationship which makes us really vulnerable because it means that, that we do need others profoundly. Now, this is only a, a problem if that need has been badly frustrated, right? So if early in life we needed others to, to care for us reliably and, and affectionately only to find that they, they were unreliable or inclined to abandon us, right, or even feel aggression or hatred toward us, then usually what happens is we try to shut down that vulnerability so that we, we feel um, safer and especially safer in relationship. And while that's an understandable solution, it then prevents us from having the experience of being known, of feeling close that I think all people long for. Mm. And how do Buddhist teachings address that fear of vulnerability when someone doesn't feel safe um, being really seen, um, uh, you know, um, or are developing those connections? Mm-hmm. Well, in in Buddhism, there's a there's a central spiritual teaching around our our tendency to get very attached 
and to grasp on to a notion of who we are or who others should be. And that it's that grasping impulse, that fierce attachment that generates a lot of suffering. And what people often find when they're meditating and when they're exploring Buddhism is that um, the more they they follow that that fierce attachment and the more they try to let it soften, the more vulnerable they feel (laughs) because often we're trying to build up an identity that helps us feel safe, right? That helps us feel protected. And when we really just let all of those, those armors soften, what comes forward is incredible tenderness, a, a kind of exquisite vulnerability which is is difficult to sustain, right? It's difficult to live into that vulnerability and feel safe enough. But that, I think, is, that's the work. That's the spiritual work and the psychological work when people are trying to, to live into a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, when we're thinking about trauma, you know, one of the things that um, we, we struggle with also is when we experience um, significant loss in our lives. And even though the human spirit is very resilient, there are times that it seems that people really feel extremely challenged when it comes to recovering from significant loss. You know, how, yeah. how does loss change us and and what does it take to recover from that yeah loss of course it's it's a central part of life uh, just just by nature of of being embodied right and coming to get very attached to others who are embodied and who can get sick and right there's so many ways we can lose other people we need um, but sometimes those losses are very shocking, and sometimes they happen in ways that leave us feeling like we, we can't go on, right? We can't continue living the way we had been. And often what can happen is when people suffer shocking loss, they develop certain certain protector parts, right? Certain parts of the psyche that say, never again. I will never let myself go through something that painful again. But often that means they will never let themselves fully love another person again, right? They will never risk the conditions that are a setup for loss. And so part of the healing process is first to to really understand what was involved in, in the original loss and how someone learned to cope after it. And then optimally to develop other ways of coping, other ways of staying safe that don't involve shutting down the ability to, to be more vulnerable, to risk loving others, to risk being known or loved by others. So that again, there's there's a sense of being able to heal 
right? A sense of being able to, to carry on and, and live a full life. And so what are some of the things that um, Buddhism and psychotherapy together um, bring to the table to help someone um, not just understand the loss? Because that's something that, you know, through talk therapy, I'm sure that people can understand that, as you have already stated, loss is unavoidable. It's just a, part, a normal part of life. But in terms of how to cope with the loss, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially someone who has had, um, who still has inner child wounds, who, who had mm -hmm. childhood trauma, and then now as an adult, they experience loss, and it's almost like pulling a scab off of the wound. You know, what... Yeah you know, how, how do you help people cope with that? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it begins with real patience because it takes time. It takes time to work through any complicated loss. And especially if someone is going through a loss in adulthood that then activates, it stirs up early childhood loss. It, it really does take time to to understand what's happened, right? Both the more recent loss and the earlier loss, to understand how one's very sense of self is changed by those losses. And then, as we were talking earlier, Sylvia, how to lift to awareness some of those really powerful beliefs that may have set in Right, before someone was able to think about who they are and what's happened to them. And and that does take some time. And, of course, anyone who's going through something painful doesn't want to be in pain, and so often there's a wish for therapy to, to be helpful quickly. Mm. But I think the, the practice of patience, right, and this is a central part of Buddhist spirituality, to, to really allow ourselves to have the time needed to, to feel into our suffering, to understand it, and then to work our way into the healing. This, this is an extremely helpful perspective. Yeah, I can see where that, that definitely is, <laughs> just to have that perspective, because we are such a, um instant gratification type of mindset yeah. in our society these days where, you know, we want it, we want it now. And it took time for those um, things to develop in our lives. And we've practiced on top of some of these traumas also. Um, and so it's, it's undoing some habits and ways of thinking, and, and that certainly does take some time. So mm -hmm. with your two books, um, bringing to light the connection or the ability to connect psychoanalysis and Buddhism together, I'm just curious how that has been greeted by your fellow colleagues and the clinical community in terms of your approach and your work and how you've interwoven these two, um, the spirituality as well as the clinical approach. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I feel fortunate. I, I find the clinicians that I'm in conversation with, even clinicians who have a very conservative training, are curious because um, people who do this work 
will eventually realize that um, we have to keep learning, right? And I think anyone who's in any healing role, any mentoring role will discover that in, in order to, to have something to offer to each particular person we work with, we really do have to keep learning, keep exploring, and then be prepared to offer whatever helps. And so I find that many of the clinicians that I talk to are are genuinely interested to just learn more about how I fold in Buddhist psychology into traditional psychoanalytic work, how these traditions are different because they they are, but how they converse together in in practical ways that are helpful to people. So I'm I'm grateful that I find a lot of curiosity and and just a lot of willingness to um to learn about healing traditions that have something to offer to psychotherapy. So you speak of Buddhist psychology. So can someone experience emotional relief from psychological problems through meditation and spiritual teachings? Yes, I, I think that happens inevitably. Uh, and certainly in Western cultures, cultures that are psychologically oriented, most people who find uh, a meditation practice will also find that their their emotional lives get stirred up. And certainly their trauma histories get stirred up. Uh, and so one of the reasons why I love to to be in conversation with with Buddhist teachers and with clinicians is that um, often people who have a meditation practice will bring what's getting stirred up, their psychological experience, to their Buddhist teachers. Mm. Uh, And it can be helpful for Buddhist teachers to appreciate that the spiritual method is is stirring up very complex material and material that might be helped a great deal through spiritual practice and through a psychotherapeutic process. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I know we're coming to the end of the show, <laughs> Dr. Jennings. Um, mm-hmm. Would you mind just sharing with everyone what your website is? so that they can learn more about you? Sure. It's it's drpilarjennings.com. It's D-R-P-I-L-A-R, Jennings.com. And I'd be happy to hear from your listeners. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show, everyone. Her book is titled, To Heal a Wounded Heart, The Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psychotherapy in Action. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll be back again next week. Until then, know that you are loved and you are lovable. Take care and have a wonderful week. Goodbye for now.